paid good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Diabolic, a bank Robin Hood who battles the cops. He robs from the rich to give to the girls. Ask Eva. Oh, you shouldn't have done it. She can't get a good night's sleep unless she's covered with money. Master sports car racer. Master skin diver. Master lover. Master, ask Eva. Diabolic, the absolute gold-plated end. Ask Eva. <laughs> Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth is Father Malone. With this suit, I can swim through the center of the sun. We wrap up 2022 with a look at Mario Bava's 1968 pop sensation, Danger Diabolique, based on the fumetti by Angela and Luciana Guisana. The film stars John Philip Law as the titular Diabolique, an atomic age super thief who gets the girl, gets the gold, and spoils the lives of every policeman in Italy, including Michelle Bicoli as Inspector Ginkgo. We will be spoiling all things Diabolique as we go along, including the latest Diabolique film that has yet to come out in the U.S. at the time of this recording, Diabolique Ginkgo Alataco. But seriously, if you haven't seen Danger Diabolique, you really need to. So Sam, when was the first time you saw the film and what did you think? Probably at some point in my teenage years. Really an annoying thing that I do, probably annoying mostly just to my friends, 
Baba and I happen to share a birthday. And so every year for probably the last 10 years at this point, I usually do a Baba marathon on my birthday. And almost every year I watch Danger Diabolic. So I've seen it a ridiculous number of times and I love it so much. It's it's perfection. Father Malone, how about yourself? This might be the first time we're discussing a movie that wasn't completely formative, Mike, for me. When I first moved to Los Angeles, it was about 1991 or 92, there was um, a 24-hour sci-fi film marathon that I attended, which I went specifically to see Planet of the Vampires because everyone had told me, oh, you got to see this. this. They ripped off Alien in this movie. So I was very excited just to see that flick, So, but I had to sit through 23 hours to get to that one. But in between, there was Danger Diabolic. It was a dream come true. This is how good the movie was. It was three o'clock in the morning and I was dozing. And then this came on and I was riveted. And then I fell asleep immediately for the next five movies or something like that. Uh, That was my first experience with it. And uh, I just love the film to pieces. I saw this one. I have a very specific memory of this. I was down in Baltimore hanging out at my friend's place and... This was on his video shelf and, you know, I've never seen this movie before. So we just popped it in kind of randomly and I don't know if he had seen it or not, but man, it just blew the top of my head off. I had not seen anything quite like this. Like I was familiar with Barbarella and some of the other like kind of pop films, the late sixties, but nothing prepared me for this. The music score, just the coolness of the character that our character is very much an anti-hero, just that he's not out there like betting all the girls and this kind of stuff. When I put this in last night, my wife's like, she didn't remember having seen it before. She's like, is this like a James Bond film? And I'm like, not really James Bond. No, it's, if anything, I think it leans closer towards Austin Power than James Bond as far as like the music and the cool sensibility of it. But there are things similar, but there's nothing quite like Danger Diabolic out there in the world. He's like the anti-Bond. I think the Matt Helm movies were pretty close. Or the, There was another series of movies in the 60s, but but I agree with very much of the time. I could imagine this is the same world that James Bond exists in because Clareville's just off the map somewhere. Uh, and that's primarily where Diabolic does all of his deeds. So I can imagine this in the same universe, but oh my God, this is such a better universe. Well, we even have one of Bond's main villains in here coming across as much more of a thug and a ruffian in this one. Adolfo Chaley from Thunderball. This cast is so stacked. And I think I've probably said on previous episodes of the projection booth about how obsessed i am with michelle piccoli also having adolfo chaley in here he he seems to be having just the best time it just all of his gadgets and everything i mean this movie is rife with gadgets which i really love and we've never really talked about this on the show before but spy movies were such a thing and there was such a movement of spy movies for just a long period and we've talked about italians and how italians will kind of like latch on to something and just like run the shit out of it and just make a whole bunch of movies that are all kind of like along the same line so there were a lot of spy movies that were coming out of italy but spy movies also coming out of the u.s spy movies coming out of the uk i mean it was just such a major subgenre that we don't really get that much anymore but Diabolique just really stands head and shoulders above so many of the other ones, especially because so many of them are just bad. You know, once James Bond was out there and 
just the, the James Bond knockoffs. I mean, Son of Bond, 00, whatever, you know, there were so many different Bond knockoffs, and that didn't even go into like the Fumetti adaptations, the comic book adaptations out of Italy. And just, you know, even I would say some of the, um, the Edgar Wallace stuff that we talked about, some of those creamy films feel like they fit into this camp as well. They're not necessarily spy films, but there is a lot of this kind of very hip, very with it, very colorful kind of cinematography that we have, a lot of music that we had. There, I was getting a real strong creamy vibe as I was watching Diabolique again last night. And I'm sorry, I keep saying Diabolique and Diabolic. Yeah, di <laughs> Diabolic, but... Yeah, well, I was watching the Italian version, and they do call him Diabolique in that, so I'm like, okay. By the way, In Like Flint was the movie series that I was trying the James Coburn thing. And, and spy movies were so prevalent. Not even spy, just movies, but like TV with I Spy and Man From Uncle and it was, even the Mod Squad. It's all sort of of a piece where everyone was wanting to investigate things and look cool doing it at the time. And I think it was also an excuse to try to incorporate, like you mentioned, the gadgets. And to me, that's one way that it's really similar to some of those creamy films is there's a lot of masks and suits going on and secret organizations. And so it's like, even though those are not spy films, they feel so similar, especially to what's going on here in Diabolic. And I also loved the way that it intentionally sort of builds off of something like Phantomas instead of actually making Diabolic a supervillain, he's an anti-hero. The first time I saw this, the thing that immediately struck me was like, wait a minute, he's being presented as this like super criminal, but he's in a monogamous relationship. Like what, <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> it's an incredible relationship. In the movie, it's staggering. It like the '60s produced the two greatest couples of all time for me, which is Gomez and Morticia Adams and Eva Kant and Diabolic. It's hard to find a, a couple more devoted to each other than them, which is perfect lift from the comic too. So, watching it again last night just reinforced, like, oh my god, these guys love each other. They cannot be without each other, and. I like that the plot eventually, even though they make her a more damsel in distress than she ever was in any of the Fumettis, it is about her. Like, it is about them. I think that needs to drive it, you know? It's also so refreshing in a lot of ways because, like, I love the Bond films. I grew up watching them. I love a lot of the novels, but they are super misogynistic in a lot of ways. And there are always female agents who are inept compared to bond and just trying to get some of his attention but here there's this like real equality there's this sense that like like i i love how a lot of the things that he does are to entertain eva sometimes <laughs> like it's just so nice <laughs> it's wholesome <laughs> the whole main heist is all about her birthday you know oh well you want those emeralds okay yeah yeah oh i'll rob rob this for you just because it's your birthday the next day and i love that she says i want that and there's no question of well should i or shouldn't i he already starts planning it's like he starts rubbing his chin like okay how am i, how am I gonna do this then it's also so much of what works about their dynamic in this film is the two chemists, the chemistry those two actors have and like 
they apparently, you know, have talked about how they had an offset relationship as well during this period. And they're just, they seem to just be having such a great time together on set. And while it would have been wild to see a version of this with Elaine Delon, who I think was envisioned as the original choice, and Catherine Deneuve, who I, I guess was replaced after her first week on set, they're just so perfect together. Well, there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. I mean, I've seen production stills. There's, I want to say in the trailer, there's a few shots that aren't in the movie that were from that original footage that you're talking about. Yeah, they replaced, I think they had two directors on at one point, and then they got rid of them before they brought in Baba. They rewrote the screenplay. Who knows what the original version would have been like before Dino De Laurentiis got involved, but some people have nothing good to say about Dino De Laurentiis, but I love a lot of the movies that he's done, and I love them because of this real kind of campy sensibility that he has. I mean, this one fits right in with something like a Flash Gordon. I mean, those colors, the music again, all this kind of stuff. I mean, Flash Gordon was, what, 12 years after this? But you can really see kind of a dotted line between these two properties and just his sensibility of that and really just putting like a a fine touch on all of this stuff, even though a lot of people say he's a schlockmeister, but I think he's great. In the same year, they did Barbarella. What a sensibility to, to get out in the world. And you're right. Like he gets a lot of shit, you know, because of the output and the not so high creative levels that that were reached. But on occasion, he produced Conan the Barbarian. So... And I think he also had a knack for talent, identifying people who he should work with and trust productions with. And, you know, I know that De Laurentiis really, I think, wanted to make a sequel to this. And Baba said, absolutely not. But that would be on my list of things that, like, if I had a time machine and if I could go back and persuade Baba, like, don't you want to make another spy spoof? (laughs) It'll be your third one. I'm very surprised that they didn't turn this into a whole series. I mean, that's what they're doing now with the movie. I think there's there was one, I want to say 20, yeah, I think it was just last year. There's one this year, and I want to say there's another one coming out next year. Because the Fumetti, they allow it. They had so many stories and it ran for so long. And they did a really smart thing with this movie where you can really feel that it is several stories all stitched together. But it's really okay. You know, it's more episodic and you just get to feel like, well, that adventure is over. Now we're moving on to another one. Or sometimes it might refer back to a previous adventure. But this movie feels like you're watching like two or three episodes of a really great TV show all put together into this amazing movie. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be overarching plot from from the get go. But then that's exact. Not only is it representative of the comics and it's sort of serialized nature, but that's his life. That's their life. <laughs> you know, it's what's the next thing will distract us now. What will make us laugh a little bit? You know, we don't ever really learn anything about either of these characters for the entire thing. And that also sort of plays into like, like you said, Mike, like it feels like three episodes of a television series. Like, you know, we don't necessarily need to dive into their past and, you know, find out how things connect the dots one to another. But like, I, I don't know, it's still compelling. <laughs> Obviously, I love the movie for all the reasons we've been talking about. It's stylish, fun. But one of the reasons it's so rewatchable for me is because every time I'm so impressed at how Baba really kind of nails 
comic book style. He sort of did the homework there. And I feel like a lot of directors who are thought of as auteurs, it seems like they often fit material to their style. Whereas I think Baba kind of thought this through in a different way and thought like, how can I make a movie actually feel like a comic book? And he did such an incredible job with that. Ang Lee gets a lot of shit for the Hulk movie that he did because it had all the panels and everything. And I agree 100% that that movie sucks balls, but this movie does not because he does make it feel like a comic book. He even puts things into frames and does all of these very comic book things with the way that it's shot. But we don't really have to suffer through what we suffered through with the Hulk. This is a much better movie and much more creative in the way that we're framing things. I mean, you've got those amazing just kind of like squares. They kind of look like bookshelves, but they're not bookshelves at, at Valmont's place. And that allows you to have so many shots where you have two characters over here in this frame, a character over here in this frame, and just like really reminding you that this is a comic book or the way that at one point Diabolic wakes up and he reaches towards the camera and the way again that that is framed is just like, I can picture this being in a comic book without having like word bubbles and balloons all over the place. You don't need to be so goddamn literal when you're translating a comic book. Maybe just read the comic and absorb it visually. And thank God Bava was such a visual stylist anyway. Like he was a painter and like, you know, and he was his own cinematographer, for God's sake. I was thinking about it last night. Like there hasn't been since the dawn of film a time where there a Bava hasn't been involved. Like, you know, his father was a cinematographer since he was since 1906 or something like that. And. Another thing about Bob that always sort of trips me out is that he, he always felt like he was just this journeyman, workman-like director. Like, I've never read an interview where he hasn't said some self-deprecating thing about himself. His workman-like attitude is so far superior to everyone going. He doesn't take his style and force it on a material. He lets the material wash over him and figure out a way to solve that problem, I think he would put it. If you read those original comics, they are so evocative and so... It just pop off the page and he gets all of that and he gets it in a subtle manner. It does bear repeating when you when you watch the movie to to like, you know, see how skillful his his framing is. But if you're just watching that movie, you don't even realize you're reading a comic book. It's genius. When also the use of all of the trick photography, all of the miniatures, the paintings that he's using, like all of these things to extend the frame and put you in this world that just does not exist. I mean, I love the way that he's using force perspective when Diabolic comes up with his car and you've got the ramp in the front that makes it look very large and the car drives in. Just all those really quick, simple things that he's doing. There's you know castles here and there, and it's just like, well, that does obviously does not exist, but we're made to believe because if you look just above Michelle Piccoli's head, it's like, okay, that's probably where the line was for the painting, but looks amazing i mean matte paintings are such a lost art that i wish people would remember how great those are and how amazing they can look because this movie looks like it was five million ten million dollars and i think his budget was what three and then he came in so under budget i think that was another reason why de Laurentiis was like hey make me another one of these like you want to use the rest of the money you can make another film also, watching a movie like this that just has so many different kinds of practical effects, it makes it harder to watch movies that are just rely on CGI and don't even try. It is so crazy that 
he could do something this visually innovative and be so under budget. Like, it's unheard of. I mean, just the locations, the sets. I mean, Diabolic's lair is so great. And it looks like it goes on for miles, this underground layer that he has. So many different parts of it. And just so simple. Some of the simple things like when they're both taking showers and you have the rectangle and the circle, which are covering up the naughty bits. But it's just like, how great is this that they're done with their adventure? They come back to the lair they take a shower and then they make love on this huge round bed full of money. And I love when like the leg comes out from under the money, all set to this fucking fantastic Ennio Morricone score that just, man, I love just the themes that he's playing with. And then I especially love when they will break to like an animated part and then you get that like wacky organ or crazy trumpet that he's using and just all of that kind of like noise but it's really more like avant-garde type of stuff i just really appreciate that and then you get the really cool like rocking sound when diabolic is driving along in this really cool car or just that whole deep deep down theme that just will not leave my head now for a few more months yes never <laughs> never pretty sure that when i die Instead of my life flashing before my eyes, it's just going to be a full three minutes of deep, deep down. I certainly hope as I'm being lowered in that that will play. While you're being lowered into a giant pit of money. <laughs> Speaking of the money, uh, that's gross. It is gross. <laughs> For a moment, it is, as you said, Mike, like alluring and kind of sexy and then immediately sinks in that they're in bills. They're just... I don't know. It really creeped me out. Like, I, I wish it had been ingots or jewels or something like even as hard and as uncomfortable as that would have been in, in the paper cuts alone. Maybe they had it steam cleaned first. I said this last night to my girl. I said, she's I hope those are new bills. Like, I hope that straight from the mint and like, hey, yeah, yeah. But Mike, can I just say that the score? I had forgotten how much I love the score. Not only the sort of cool themes sort of running throughout, like, you know, Diabolic's, you know, very ding, 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 ding kind of thing. Our first introduction to Diabolic is after we've watched the parade of cops pretending to be chauffeurs and, 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 and moneyed men, gentlemen, is Diabolic's car race into that empty parking lot with those squiggly lines that what even is supposed to go there? And and you just get the one sort of guitar like chord like now it's like oh this is the hero the way he's taking us you know all the way now <laughs> and Morricone does that throughout every scene seems to have its own peculiar theme and he's using all these weird instrumentations with sitars and there's a marimba in there somewhere later on in the movie when when their lair is breached the alarm is a is like a pipe organ. Every alarm for the rest of my life to just be organ chords like loud. I know I said at the beginning of the episode that I've watched this a ridiculous number of times, but there really are so many little details buried in here that you could watch it almost every year as I do and still find new things like it, it's just overflowing with creativity. Sam, you and I talked a few months ago about what is one of now one of my favorite films, uh, Kuro Kage, the original Black Lizard. And that has a lot of the same type of pop sensibility in here as well. Because in that one, I was talking about other pop Japanese films. And there's the whole Lupin series that is done in anime, but there's also at least one live action Lupin film that is so live action cartoon. 
this one is live action comic book, but it doesn't feel cartoony, if that makes sense. Like the, the Michelle Piccoli character, Inspector Ginko, he never comes off like, oh, that darn diabolic, I'll get him next time. Like none of that kind of stuff. He's just like so calm about things and he knows that diabolic is out there and he's going to do his best to try to bring him in. I think he knows somewhere in his heart that diabolic will never be caught, that he will always get away. He's trying his best. Ginko is definitely trying his best, but he never gets that kind of like that darn rabbit got away again. He's not an Elmer Fudd type of, of inspector. Michelle Piccoli, one of the things I love about him is he often has this very sort of dry kind of satirical humorous edge to a lot of his characters and i think that comes through with inspector ginkgo like even when he's enraged by something diabolic has done he he seems to be kind of amused or even impressed at certain times like the the laughing gas it's like you gotta kind of chuckle a little bit without like you said making it feel like it doesn't ever feel like a kid's movie no all the characters at all times are very grounded and they're never it does never feels like a cartoon there are serious consequences to some of the actions in this people die horribly <laughs> and ginkgo at the at the center of it like does provide a center that you don't often get in a movie like this where even though we'll have cartoonish villain like the valmon character but having ginkgo he is a definite threat to it but he's not a threat that we're necessarily rooting against because he's charming as well. Like he's doing his job. Like that's one of the things I really like about this movie, this character and this world is that it's all professionals. In fact, Diabolic, when he's on the plane at the end with Valmon, he's like, this is very unprofessional. Love the Ginkgo relationship with, 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 with Diabolic. And, and, and as you said earlier, Mike, like ultimately he knows he's never going to get this guy, but it's not about that. Right. It's the chase. Well, it's like, you've got, Ralph Valmont over on one side being that very, he's more cartoonish to your point. Yeah. He's more cartoonish as far as like being that ultra villain type of guy. And I like to see him humiliated. And then you've got Terry Thomas on the other side as the first, he's the minister of interior. And then he's the minister of finance and he gets humiliated both times in that. And I just love to see him lose his shit in this movie. And I love that laughing gas scene where they're all laughing at him. And it's so nice because he plays that type of pompous asshole so well and bringing him in and having, you know, this ultra thick, you know, British accent of his and just, you know, he's so posh. And when he gets egg on his face, it's just like, that's great. I love it. And yeah. Meanwhile, you've got Ginkgo there just like, you know, don't go out and say you're going to do these things to Diabolic because he's just going to ruin you. Like, just don't throw the gauntlet down. Don't try to give him a challenge because he's going to just, you know, completely blow up all of the banks, all of the tax services, all of the things that Tyler Durden wanted to do. He's going to do it and just ruin all of the credit of Italy and make him be like, oh, you know, I really trust that you're going to come pay your taxes. You know, everybody's got to pay their fair share, right? I remember cackling the first time I saw this movie when he was like, oh, that's what you're doing? Well, I'm going to destroy your entire credit system. Your entire credit system. Let's see how that goes. Just, and I'm, it's just for fun, really. I, this is how easy it is to get back at you. Don't come at me. It's almost like he's walking this line between kind of whimsical chaos and having a little bit of a Robin Hood-like quality where the people that he fucks with deserve it. 
And like, as you watch the film, it's like everyone knows that this person deserves what's coming to them. Even Ginkgo. But Ginkgo never puts his neck out. He never says, oh, I'm going to get you diabolic. I'm going to be, you know, your greatest nemesis. He's just kind of more there behind the scenes. He's trying to come up with his good ideas. Like, yeah, let's go ahead and we're going to melt down all the gold in the entire country into this massive ingot. And we're going to irradiate it so that we can track him. And of course, it goes horribly awry, you know. But I mean, at the end of the day, that's it, though. He leads him right to the lair. Ginkgo's, Ginkgo's right on top of things. That lair compromise had diabolic not been wearing that incredible suit and my god we should talk about the outfits in this movie as well john philip law with that amazing what would you like the cowl kind of thing i mean i love that it gives him this fake widow's peak that he's got he's got these amazing eyebrows and so much of this movie is just him and his eyebrows there's so little dialogue you know it seven lines i think in the entire movie honestly it's like silent film acting. The thing about that mask is it's so formed to his face that everyone's like, no one's ever seen his face. I'm like, yes, you all have. If you took a picture of it and just drew, like lightened it up a little, that's his face, everybody. <laughs> I give you a We can see it right now. <laughs> Get that great identikit that they're using for Eva's face. What a sequence. That's ridiculous. She turns into Twiggy there. But also... In some ways, he does kind of remind me of Alain Delon a little bit. Like, they have sort of a similar facial structure. They're the same type of handsome. But my one of my favorite Baba-related stories is the John Philip Law audition, where he, I guess, was a fan of comic books, but, like, mostly American comic books, and so read some of the comic and decided, like, I must have this part. Or some kind of like eyeliner or some kind of makeup on his eyebrows to make them really dramatic and just like went in there and did his eyebrow acting for his audition. And Baba was like, here we go. (laughs) And it's so good in the movie. Like, how can you be that good just with your eyebrows? It's an incredible performance in that laugh. Oh, my God. When we finally see him, we finally get to see our hero. After this amazing sequence where Bava pulls out all the stops with that smoke, man, it's it's such a chaotic, wonderful scene. And then it's just his laugh over the opening credit. Oh, my God. he's I love the character that has a good time. And I've never seen any character have a better time than Diabolic in this movie. He just revels in being bad and just doing things to make the police angry. And I really appreciate that. You know, the thing is, in the, in the original Fumetti's, like, when he started out, he was a very amoral character. Murder was not a problem. He would kill anyone to get what he wanted. And Eva started out as an adversary of his. And as the comics went on, he did start to get this sort of more Robin Hood-like vibe. And he would kill if it was absolutely necessary, like, either he or Eva were in peril. But that's when all the sort of laughing gas and pentothal and all of the gadgets started coming in. And he started getting kind of a moral compass where he is this chaos agent. But at the same time, he's he's at least not horribly disrespectful for life, which is a little funny uh, having like seen the movie originally and loving it, and then reading the comics and then and then seeing it again, like, you know, randomly killing a truck full of police, you know, a car full of police guys, like putting them off the edge of a cliff. I don't know that those guys necessarily deserve that. Or Like he throws a knife and kills some sentry at the castle when he's trying to get that necklace. I was just like, that, that hurt a little bit. But 
But he's an anti-hero. Yeah, that didn't like there's nothing better in the world than an anti-hero, but you know, I don't know. It's fine in this case, I guess. You gotta kill a few guys to get that necklace if Eva wants it. It it is interesting though that it started out as being much more like Phantomas, where Phantomas in the original series is not an anti-hero. He is just a super villain with no real moral qualities, no likable qualities, which of course makes him captivating. And I'm glad that Diabolic, both the Fumetti and the film, didn't just become a copy of Phantomas, like developed into its own thing where that central relationship was so important. And because it gives it so much more heart. And I think you see that come through so clearly in the film. Well, and I also like that he's not this Professor Moriarty type. He's not at the center of this web of crime. Like, um, yeah, he's not a Mabuza. He's not, he doesn't have all of these agents everywhere. It's just Diabolic and Ava. And it's just those two against the world. And it's just what they can think of, what they can do, what they can get away with. There's not like a bunch of helpers out there. It's just these two. I mean, they're just getting their kicks and getting like, he doesn't seem to need the money. He just wants to do these things. He just wants to do elegant crimes. You know, we talked about elegant crimes with Black Lizard, and I think Black Lizard and him would probably get along pretty darn well. I like that Eva knocks him out for 20 hours. And when he wakes up, he's like, why? And she's like, because you just start planning if you have nothing to do. Or no, you go crazy if you're not planning. Well, and he becomes living art. He becomes those statues that Black Lizard was so all about at the very end of the film with that amazing image of him covered in gold with the eyes still visible. And then when he just winks at Ava, it's just like, oh, yeah, all eye acting. And he's just so good at it. And it's so smart that they put him in that outfit, that they were able to put his stuntman in the exact same outfit. So it just looks like it's John Philip Law doing all of the stunts throughout the entire film. And this is an action-packed movie, and I just love how quickly it moves and that you're never bored watching this. I think that episodic nature of the storytelling also helps, just moves it along. I mean, characters will come in, once they're done, they're done, and you don't necessarily have to have them come back. Like the Valmont character, it's like, okay, you're done now. You know, we're going to jump out of this plane together, motherfucker, and that's pretty much going to be the end of you. (laughs) And I'm going to keep your body as a mule. Well, it's so great, too, that he shoots him with those emeralds after we just saw Valmont, like, Xing out the doctor with the machine gun. I love how he's just like, I told you I'd crossed you off the register. And he uses the machine gun as an X to go through the guy. Nothing can be just done here. It has to be done stylishly and wonderfully. (laughs) Stylishly or not at all? All of Valmont's people and everything, like, like, when I was watching it last night, I just kept thinking, like, If this were any other movie, seeing those people in those settings, this would be like the elegant people. And here they just seem so crass and tacky, like all of the all of the hangers on and like all like the girls seem kind of gross. And (laughs) and the guys are all idiots. He's trying to be Mabusa. He's trying to be that criminal at the center of a web. And he's just not doing a very good job. And just to think that he's like one of the top criminals that we have in this town. Yeah, there's no competition here. Sorry. What's going on in Clareville, y'all? Like, <laughs> It's hard to talk about this without it making me sad that there wasn't a whole series of these. I also don't understand how... I know John Philip Law was in a lot of great movies. Obviously, Barbara Ellen, 
the, the film to Diabolic. But like, how did he not have a bigger career? I just don't understand it. It's kind of insane you think about it, like just how good he is and the few things that he's really known for, how that didn't translate to huge things. I don't know. Like, where was Dino Laurentiis? Dino De Laurentiis there, Mike? I know. I know. He let me down with that one. Because, yeah, this should have been like his go-to guy for a long time for a lot of different movies. And, I mean, he was great in things like Death Rides a Horse and, of course, Skidoo, one of the best movies. No, I can't even pretend that that's a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> Not even good at like a, like a museum piece. Or heard about than seen. But yeah, he should have had a much bigger career, and I don't get it. And I, I too, you mentioned the laugh. I love that it's him actually laughing, that he can do that laugh. Because at first I was just like, oh, well, that's obviously somebody just, you know, dubbing it over because of the way that Italian movies are made. It's like, is that really his voice coming out of his mouth? Is it not? You know, I think the voice that they have for um, uh, the, the, the Valmont character he sounds a little Paul Freeze-ish to me sometimes, just kind of really overdoing the criminal nature. But well, that's just as he kept talking about the the room stretching and there's no exits. I'm just making a haunted mansion joke. I'm sorry. A voiceover actor does have that sort of quality where it's like if you close your eyes, you could picture them twirling their mustache or something. <laughs> I was like that. His picture, Adolfo Celli's picture. IMDb is him with that eye patch, and I kind of wish that he'd had the eye patch in more films. You know, it looks so good. You know, you mentioned the costumes in this, Mike. Eva wears this dress made out of complete eyelets, like uh, like grommets, and it is just so spectacular. Like it's just one of a million fantastic outfits in this. Like the world should look this way. It is that's the real tragedy here that doesn't. This the tenth victim, maybe Barbarella. Even like Jess Franco's She Killed in Ecstasy. It's like, why Why do we have to have like a 90s grunge fashion revival? Why can't we have a 1968 Art Deco mod Bureau Spy revival? Mike, I'm sure you you lived through the that, that 60s revival that we had to endure at the end of the 1980s. All the boomers were shoving their goddamn culture down our throat, right? But it was all the hippie nonsense. Like, where was the mod gorgeous gorgeousity where where was these the 60s influence of, of the of europe uh, no 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 no. wear these love beads put on some mop. ava's outfit that's like all fur and then she's got the little veil like she's in mourning that is amazing or we i mentioned uh diabolic in that uh asbestos suit that with a looks like suit of armor the way that he's got the helmet that goes up it just looks so good. Every freaking outfit that these guys wear. And the visor is angled yes. like it's it looks like a sentinel or something. It's it's everything is so custom in this movie. It's phenomenal. Everything should be bespoke. When he switches over to the white outfit to go up the castle walls and he's got the big suction cups. <laughs> so great. Suction cups. Okay. That is obviously a piece of tech that existed in 1968 or so when they were filming this, right? And they were like, oh, these are cool. Let's put these on. And that Okay, that felt okay. But when he's doing the crime and he pulls out a Polaroid land camera, I'm like, really? You have an underground lair that stretches on forever. You built a safe in your lair that operates as a combination lock with lights. This many lights, then this many lights, then this many lights, and then it pops open. You're using a Polaroid lamp. Where were you hiding that when you were skin diving in? Sorry. That's my only problem with the movie. I have to say, I never saw the body moving 
video by the Beastie Boys until I saw it on the DVD for the movie. I never saw that when it played on MTV, if it played on MTV, because it's an insane video. I mean, it goes on forever. And it's not really the song. It's more like an instrumental version of the song. It did. So you actually saw it on MTV? Yeah, I think I want to say that they played the full version on like some sort of special nighttime thing. But I love that it was included on the DVD. It just like, here are some people who had enough talent and influence that if they just wanted to fuck around and make a diabolic throwback video, they could. And bless them. I saw this video too at the at the time, just playing on MTV, and I remember like my neck nearly snapping. Like, wait, what? What, what is this happening? What? <laughs> Ultimate admiration for it, but at first I was a little offended. Honestly, I was just like, don't don't cut that gorgeous movie into your thing. Like, we all like it. Just go recreate it on your own. You know, didn't stop Coppola. He made that whole movie about the oh boy. DQ or whatever it was. Eesh. Yeah, I tried watching that one. I could not get through it. And I love Jeremy Davies. Until Davis. in that. Yeah. I don't know. The Coppola kids, it takes a lot for me to sit through one of their movies. Well, what was the uh, Spirit of 76? Wasn't that a Roman Coppola movie? That sort of parody with David Cassidy? That was pretty good. Okay. I can't say that I know that one. Early 90s. Yeah, I don't know that one. Yeah, I remember CQ and that was about it just because the trailer was like, oh, wow, this looks right up my alley. This looks fantastic. And then when I tried to watch it, I was just like, okay, you are really enamored with these films and I respect that, but maybe try to say something on your own. I don't know. Make a movie like those instead of making of the movie and don't cast Jeremy Davies, who's just always creepy. I like him a lot, but he is a great creep. I mean, especially when he was fucking his mom and spanking the monkey. Well, just like that, yeah. You want me to soap up your back, Mom? Yeah. <laughs> this, it just moves so well. There's so many great things in this film. And it just, like you said, Sam, every time I watch it, I notice more things because it is just, just layered with so many amazing ideas and images. And it just never gets boring. I can see why you would watch this every single year. And I, I wish that I could see this on the big screen sometime because I imagine it's just got to be a feast for the senses because it is on video. I can't even imagine watching this. This feels like such a movie that you would watch with a group and everybody would have a good time. I think this is true of every single Baba movie, but I think they all deserve to be shown in IMAX. If there's a way to project 35 millimeter into IMAX... <laughs> I mean, I know there's not, but they're all just so gorgeous. And this is definitely, it's a movie that I have used to introduce people who aren't really big cult cinema fans to sort of weirder Euro stuff. It's just like impossible not to fall in love with it. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back after these brief messages. Coming soon from WeirdingWayMedia.com, a new limited series podcast featuring Mike White from The Projection Booth, Chris Stashu from The Culture Cast, and me, Mark Bagley, from Wake Up Heavy Recollections of Horror. We will be cracking open the seal from the files of Police Squad in color in this 10-episode series starting January 2023. Find it on WeirdingWayMedia.com.
Okay, we are back and we are talking about Danger Diabolic. And I mentioned the sequels that they have, or I should say, like, I guess it's just a brand new series. I shouldn't say sequel because it's it's not really remake of Diabolic, the Bava film from 68. It's more of a kind of a new thing that they're doing. But even before that, and, and it was 2021 was the first one. Even before that, in 97, there was a Diabolic cartoon that was on called Sabin Diabolic. And it ran for three seasons. I tried to watch a couple episodes, but I have to say I was so confused watching the episodes because they just talk about moving at a clip. They, I think they tried to tell one whole like little diabolic story per episode. And man, they just move, move, move to the point where I'm just like, what am I watching? What's going on? My eyes are crossing. <laughs> I mean, the look of it was cool. And, you know, diabolic it fits that cartoon would be made out of him. But man, I was I was lost. It's very, very serialized. It's actually more serialized than the comics themselves because you got Adventures of Diabolic for years and years and years. It wasn't until like 66 or 67 that they started filling in his backstory. And this one just explodes with the ba- with the backstory, like right up front. Like you find out you know, he was an orphan on an island and he was raised by a gang of criminals. And, you know, his leader was named King who had a panther named Diabolic. But like... That's stuff you can find out as you go along. I don't know that we need to like smack you in the face and get your entire biographical history, but it, it is it is well drawn. <laughs> that is my complaint with a lot of more recent things is like why for for something like this, like why do we need the psychology, the trauma history, the, the biography? It's like that makes sense for for certain types of stories, but I feel like there's this like need to do it for everything and something like Diabolic. It's like, no, it's just, it's about the vibe and the heist. We don't need to know that he was an orphan. This isn't Casino Royale. It actually cheapens the character. I mean, knowing anything about his, his past other than what he tells us is is uh, too much. And, and yeah, like the island of misfit toys that we eventually got at readers of that comic it wasn't great you know but everyone is kind of like playing with that now like that that series did like if you play any of the diabolic video games that's all baked into it the brotherhood it's the big criminal organization that they created and uh and you know in the new movies as well like they the new movies seem to be you were saying like it's not a requel it's it is just sort of now based original on the original material again but which is fine except they don't understand that we now want that movie we want the bava movie for diabolic from now on (laughs) yeah i watched the 2021 film today and i didn't mind it at all i thought that it looked really nice i thought that some of the ideas in it were pretty good i thought that the woman playing ava kant was just absolutely gorgeous the guy that plays diabolic himself looks pretty good and he's a handsome guy he has a nice widow's peak going on in it. So when he puts on the mask, kind of emphasizes that, which I thought was nice. It really starts to fall back, though, on one of the reasons why I don't really care for Mission Impossible 2, because they've got the, the mask gag that they like to use in Mission Impossible, and they just keep using that mask gag over and over and over again. And it's just like, who are you talking to? Are you actually talking to the inspector? Oh, no, you're talking to Diabolic, and he just has the inspector's face on. The one thing that I like is there's a, I guess it would be like one of the ministers or something, and he's trying to get Diabolic. He has information on Eva. He's holding that over her, and he ends up, Diabolic comes in and does him 
I can't remember the name of the henchman, the name of the actor that plays the henchman in um, Mission Impossible 2, but this whole thing where he puts the, the, the tape over the guy's mouth and puts the mask on him so he can't say anything, and he looks like Ethan Hunt, and so the guy just straight up ganks him. They kind of do something like that in this first Diabolic film, where the guy looks like Diabolic, and they put him in a guillotine, and they end up cutting his head off. And I was like, oh, okay, I didn't expect that. <laughs> so... Talk about amoral. The source material here, where I can't remember the last time I've seen a head get severed and then a mask pulled off, revealing that it was somebody else who had been drugged to docile and led to the guillotine. So in that regard, this movie's a success, a big success. But other than that, it is glacially paced. And for, you know, it is a it is a very, very good adaptation of like the first three or so digests. I like all the production design and I like all the actors in it. They're all, as you said, they're both leads are gorgeous in this movie. And as a plot, the meeting of Eva and Diabolic is a worthy one. And I was excited to watch that. And I, and I, every time they were interacting, I was very happy, but everything else was so felt like a movie from 1964 or 62 instead of comment on it was the pacing is just crazily off as far as I can tell. Yeah, and that's the thing that the 68 has in spades is just, like I said, it moves, moves, moves. And this one from 2021 feels very much like a 2021 film where it's just like, okay, we're going to explain this to you. We're going to take you into this. I mean, yeah, production design looks amazing that they have it as a period piece is very nice. I'm curious what happened between the first movie and the second movie, because even though it feels like they shooting these almost all at once they actually recast diabolic so it's a different gentleman playing him in the second film so they went from luca minnelli and then they ended up with giacomo giannetti boy why do i choose to pronounce these names mike i think what happened was it was the pandemic i think that first diabolic had been done and they intended to do the next two in a row and when that happened, they asked the original actor if he would wait. And he said, no, <laughs> I'm going to take other work. And so then they had to recast. But I, I like the new guy better. I am unfamiliar with the new guy. I saw the trailer for this new film, and I think it comes out like within a week of us recording this. So I really wish that we could have seen this new movie. I love Monica Bellucci. So to see her in something would be great. And then they've already got the third one announced Diabolic Kise. Monica Bellucci's playing Altia, who is the other major character in these comics and that has never been portrayed at all. It's, it's actually Jinko's fiance, and she's this wealthy heiress. And that plays throughout the comics, that relationship where they interplay between Diabolic and her and Diabolic and, and Jinko. And it's a uh, it's actually kind of exciting, the new movie, except I'm I'm sad that it's the same filmmakers who are just gonna pace it the exact same way. <laughs> I don't know. I watched I watched a bunch of uh, videos from Italy, like nerdy podcaster Italians. Their opinions seem to be it's not as good as the first movie. And they really liked the first film. And I'm like, Ugh. yeah, even in the trailer, they're already giving away this whole thing of like Eva pretending that Diabolic has left her and then her turning good again and all this. And it's just like as if this would ever occur. No, he wouldn't be Diabolic anymore. No, exactly, because she's having too much fun being a criminal, and I really love that how much fun they have, and she's just like, oh, wow, doing crimes is great. If they were to contrive a plot where he actually turned against her, then I would no longer like him. 
Yeah, she's part of the package deal. And that's something I did like in the remake, actually, is she's much more active. And she was much more active in the uh, in the comics. And, you know, she does her job, certainly, that they allow her to do in Danger Diabolic. But here, you can see what she's capable of. And that only grows. She She's an equal partner, as opposed to, what are you doing in there, honey? Well, I'm making a drill. Yeah, the, the first wife is just like, oh, man, he's, he was married before. Okay, this really isn't working. And we find out that it's not working in any way. And so when she kind of, she goes mad a little bit when she finds all of the, the hidden stuff. And he's really try, trying to gaslight her. And that's where I'm, I turned against Diabolic a little bit because I was just like, why are, you, why are you even married to this woman if you're just going to keep her in the dark all the time? You know, just pick move. I don't even know where that one came from. Like they were digging deep in there to like make him undesirable as a human being because he's never that even as amoral as he's ever got. Like, that's just cruel. Why? Why are you saddling our hero with that? I don't want to be the naysayer who is like, nothing should ever be remade because I'm sure you could do some great adaptations of the comics, but. I think because Danger Diabolic is so great, it's like if you're going to do an adaptation, it has to, even if it's not, you know, a remake of that movie, it at least has to sort of live up to the promise of that and stop explaining everything all the time. It's diabolic. It's a fumetti. We don't need lots of backstory and we don't need to be lectured to just show us beautiful crimes. Yeah, and it doesn't have to ape the original style, but it has to be as stylish. Like, it's not enough to recreate 1962. It's just a a fantasy world we're living in. They're they're in Clareville, which is supposedly Geneva or something. I did like that we went to Genf uh, at one point, the the sister city, which you rarely hear of, but uh, (laughs) it's a nice little world that we never get to explore. And if we are going to explore it, then explore it like Bava did. Now, actually do that. Why can't we get a Netflix series? with somebody just admitted to that aesthetic. They tried to do it with Lupin and I was so excited about it. And then I have yet to actually turn on an episode. I'm just like, eh, yeah, maybe I'll just stick to the Lupin that I like. I want colors popping visually. Like I'll watch this new movies, of course, because I love the character, but it's not, it's not a joy. The best thing about these new movies I have to say is the music that it doesn't come anywhere near the Morricone score, but there were some good kind of poppy songs, especially at the beginning of the film where I was just like, okay, yeah, this is getting close. It's not quite there, but it's pretty close at this moment. It seemed like there was promise. That's why I'm genuinely interested in seeing the sequel and maybe they're getting closer and closer to the Bava, you know, as the years roll on in this new universe. You know, talking about the Italians and just that kind of copycat thing that they had. There was also a comic book called Satanic with a K at the end. So kind of like Diabolic, which was a young woman scientist who's disfigured, I think. And she wears a mask and the mask she wears is almost identical to uh, the Diabolic mask. And even on the poster, it's that mask, but it's red. But then if you look at any sort of production stills, it's all black with the, the widow's peak and just the eyes showing and severe eye makeup kind of thing. I hadn't had a chance to watch that, but I was just like, yeah, maybe this seems, you know, like even when I look at some of like the Turkish posters for things, I'm just like, is that supposed to be the Phantom or is that supposed to be Diabolic? Like if, if you just turn it one shade a little darker, you move from the Phantom to Diabolic. Yeah, Satanic is cool. I found some of the comics 
she also is more of a supervillain and is a scientist and like invents this formula that makes her turn into this beautiful red-haired lady except when she's beautiful then she's like "Ooh, crime as you do there's one more movie that i really wanted to watch called uh diabolic is me which is i think it's like a fake documentary about a a mysterious disappearance of one of the first artists that worked on the diabolic comic books and it takes this whole trip through who is this person and what happened to them unfortunately i could not find any english subtitles for it It is just italian subs and i even tried to do like ocr optical character reading of those subs and stuff and it ended up looking more like russian than it was english so i was like yeah i'm can't do it but maybe one of these days we'll be able to see that one and that just came out in 2019 so you would think that something more recent would have english subtitles available i watched it there's so much good footage of the original the original artwork but i was just baffled i didn't know what was going. i didn't even know that there was a there it was about a disappearance (laughs) (laughs) yeah i was reading that it was just a good idea but in execution was a total mess and didn't make any sense oh boy I'll save my judgment until I can actually see it with English subtitles, but until then, it will remain a mystery. Like Diabolic himself. By the way, in that remake, they capture him and get his photographs and stuff like right out the gate. And like, that happened in the comics, but don't do that. Don't do that. That he, he cannot be caught. Like when he suddenly pulls this light and this bright light shines into Ginko's eyes, it's just like, all right, yeah, this is fantastic. And then he runs out and there's two more cops. I was like, can't you take those two cops out? It really feels like you could, even if they have guns pointed at you. Where's the where's the fisticuffs, man? Kind of a shame, but I'll reserve judgment again until I see the second movie, and we'll, we'll see if it improves or not. I mean, like I said, I don't think the first one is bad. It's not recapturing what Baba did, and, you know, I might say, like, oh, it's just fan service. You're just playing into that, but you know what? I'm okay with fan service for this one. I'm okay if you want to really just turn it into this beautiful poppy thing with your animation breaks in here the terrific score that amazing laugh i don't think that he laughs once in the the new films gives his little damnation curse that he likes to do a few times but that's not it that's because we're not allowed to have fun anymore there's no laughing i thought comedy was legal now all right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. 2001, A Space Odyssey, is an epic drama of adventure and exploration which begins millions of years ago and ends with man confronting his destiny among the stars. It is a story that will sweep you across a half billion miles to the greatest of all the planets, mighty Jupiter. And even then, your journey will be just beginning. For across the light years, the stars are waiting and watching. 2001, A Space Odyssey, reveals the strangeness, beauty, and wonder that may be waiting for us on the moon and planets in the year 2001. 2001, A Space Odyssey. That's right, we're trying again. The long-delayed episode on 2001, A Space Odyssey, might be here next week, but don't hold your breath. Until then... Whether we see it or not, I want to thank this week's co-host, Sam and Father Malone. So, Father Malone, what is the latest with you, sir? Well, if you want to find out anything more that I do, go over to Weirding Way Media. That's at WeirdingWayMedia.com. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a multinational conglomerate of excellent podcast hosts. 
go there. That you can, you can hear all of my stuff. Uh, I do a show called Dark Destinations, which is a half-hour radio drama I write and produce. And I got a new show. Uh, by the time this comes out, it should be on the air, actually, called Astounding Tales of the Public Domain. It's audio-enhanced uh, readings of uh, some of the greatest science fiction of all time. And Sam, what's going on in your world? You can find me my podcast, Twitch of the Death Nerve, or on my Patreon. And I think by the time this comes out, some of the commentaries I've done recently, I did one on Ringo Lamb's Burning Paradise for Vinegar Syndrome, which is part of their big Black Friday drop. And I've done some other things for them, but I don't know if it will be announced by this point, but definitely Burning Paradise is amazing. Twitch of the Death Nerve, it's on the Cinepunks network, but you can find us on Apple and Spotify. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, you can check out all those shows. Father Malone already said it once. They're all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Uh-huh.